0: Amen. Nobody told me when it was my turn, so I, I didn't. I, it's my turn now? Okay. it's many, turn. <laughs> okay. Amen, amen, amen. I feel bad about being late being up here, but. Uh, oh, wow. What a day. What a time. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for all that. Uh, all the people that make an event like this happen. Uh, I haven't, I haven't seen the teen workers. Maybe I did eating someplace, but I don't know who they are. I haven't seen the children's workers and the people that are watching the littlest children. And there's a lot of other people. That just, you know, everybody's got a face and nobody has a uniform. So. But there's so many people involved, and I just need to say thank you for putting something like this on. The logistics, the organization, and getting everybody. I keep asking uh, Alan, I say, Alan, how's everything going? He fine, I don't know about any problems. And with all the people that are here and all the things that are going on, to be able to say that as a leader, God bless Alan. You have been such a blessing to him and to Sam and to all the other pastors here. But and thank you. I'm just so well. T- I'm so spoiled being here. I've eaten more food or had more opportunities to eat here than I have in the last month back home. I'm not kidding. Somebody's trying to feed me. Give me a cookie, a candy bar, a drink, a c- coffee or whatever. If I took it all, I would have doubled in size in the last three days. But anyway, thank you so much. I do have to go home tomorrow, and, I, and let me explain. I usually stay, and then one of the pastors is gracious enough to ask me to preach on Sunday and, in their church. But on Sunday, I'm having my first um, family reunion. When I say that, I've re- I can't ever remember having a family reunion. My parents never put one on. I just don't ever remember being in ones. But me, myself, myself and two of my sisters a couple years ago now said we ought to do this. I have 6 siblings and so we planned it for last year, but you know it happened last year, so that blew that all out of the water. But we said next year. So this is next year in Sunday. We've got 58 uh, of my relatives that are coming together from alaska california colorado florida north carolina and new york to get together and i don't we've never been together like this and probably never ever will again and uh, i need to go home to be part of that i really do i'd love to stay but uh, when when i was asked to do this i knew about it and i told the fellows i need to go home on saturday and I appreciate John, who's going to be taking me to the airport uh, tomorrow morning, and my son. um, I did check his driving record out uh, earlier today, and I sent his car down to the car wash to have it vacuumed and cleaned out, so everything should be fine. We have had a rich, rich uh, morning here each morning, the last two mornings. The uh, four sermons that have been preached have just so... Uh, dovetailed together so well. Humility and prayer. There isn't going to be any prayer without humility, because when you're not humble, you don't need God. And the only reason you'd pray would maybe to get your hamburger down legally, you know, as a Christian. But other than that, you know, I don't need God. What do I, what do I need to pray for? But listening to the messages, they have been so rich by uh, the three men that have presented these four sermons, and I have benefited and profited from them, and I want to thank you for that also, for having just the privilege to be here and sit under their ministry. And thank you for all the friends over the years, going way back literally into the 70s, not 1870s, but 1970s, (laughs) that go back to Kansas City Baptist Temple. First time I came out here was to a youth camp, uh, back at the end of the 70s, and then to the college and career weekends, and I've had the opportunity to speak so many times over the years, and this is one of my favorite, favorite places on this planet. Thank you for all the friends, and then the new people that I've met here this week. Don't forget, my if if tonight my message, I don't say this, I will, but if I don't say this, my main purpose is to try to motivate you to get into the Word of God. You have as good an opportunity, your churches, as any church I know, because of the teachers you have, the Bible Institute that's been set up, the curriculum, and the the availability of all of this stuff. Shame on you. If you have the opportunity and you know you ought to be a student of the Word of God, shame on you. I don't want to make an enemy out of you, but I mean it. Shame on you if you don't take advantage of what God has given to you. So I've been saying some things here that were controversial on purpose that might ruffle some feathers or shake you up a little bit and cause you to maybe dig in a little deeper in the Word of God. And that's what I want to do tonight. Let's go to the Lord and pray right now, and I've got much more time tonight than I had last night. Let's kind of put all of this together, all right? Father, we come to you and thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, you are so good to us, and we are so blessed to be here with so many good people, good friends, loving friends, sincere and genuine friends. Lord, uh, it's a little bit, a little taste of heaven, no doubt. Now bless our time together. We thank you for the time of worship, the testimonies we've had. And now as we open your word tonight, I pray that you, I know you will bless your word and Lord plunge it by your Holy Spirit deep into our hearts. And for those who here are on the bubble, maybe on the fence about taking the next step to go a little bit deeper, a little bit further in the word, I pray, Lord, that your spirit, not me, I can't do it, but your spirit and your word tonight will motivate and encourage people to take that next step to become everything that you want them to be. Lord, that they would humbly submit in prayer to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now let me just kind of sum up what uh, we said on uh, the first night and then last night also. Uh, I'm hitting three what I call controversial, controversial passages in the Bible, and they're not all controversial in the same way. The first uh, uh, message on Wednesday night was about Genesis chapter one through eleven, and how the Bible is trying to be marginalized, attacked, neutralized, and eliminated, thrown out, discarded—whatever word you want to use—and those first eleven chapters in the book of Genesis are being attacked. Is are they really genuine? Are they valid? Is it just—are uh, these uh, mythical creatures and individuals and? Is this just a kind of an allegorical story telling, not the real truth, but some things that would lead us and give us some ideas of maybe how all that we see got here? And of course, that's not true. We believe those first 11 chapters that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable. It's the real thing. It's real stuff. But there are many out there, and certainly the devil leads the pack, that go, yay hath God said, not coincidental that that shows up in the very third chapter of the Bible, the devil's out there questioning what God has said. And that's a sermon in and of itself, uh, as many of you know. But uh, not only is the, the chapters and the content of the chapters been attacked, the personalities that are in there, but then the authorship. Uh, In the authorship being Moses. And we noted that just in my notes that are available to you, there's 26 passages, Old and New Testament, that validate the authorship of the uh, law, the first five books of the Bible, of which Genesis is the first. And we stated that the Bible is a Jewish book. Now that may not seem to go together yet there, but as we progress on you'll see how important that is. The first 11 chapters ended with the introduction of an individual named Abraham and Abraham is the grandfather of Israel or of Jacob. So really we're seeing the foundation or the beginnings of the Israelite people in the first 10, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. We want to un- the devil wants to undermine that and get you to believe that it's just a fairy tale. So, uh, uh, you know it's, it's not real, it's a myth or whatnot. but the, the uh, progenitor, of Israel is introduced right there at the end of chapter number 11. Now is he a real individual? We noted that characters that appear in those first eleven chapters there's nineteen appearances of those individuals at least in eight other books of the Bible. So if they're fictitious then what about all of the other references to those people in all of the other books of the Bible? For example, if Jesus talks about, as in the days of Noah, was there really a Noah? Did Jesus know what he was talking about when he said that? And of course if Noah is fictitious, then Jesus probably knew he was fictitious, either that or Jesus didn't know what he was talking about when he said that. So you can see how uh, the atheist or the unbeliever or the agnostic is trying to build a case to invalidate the scriptures. But the Bible is a Jewish book and Abraham is introduced right there Genesis chapter 11 and then the the rest of the Old Testament really is a history of the nation of Israel. So we're going to lay that aside which took us into the book of Romans into the New Testament. Is the Old Testament Jewish? Yes, of course. How about the New Testament? We gave you a list of reasons last night of PowerPoints why we believe that the New Testament is Jewish, and we went to what is probably the most theologically important book in the New Testament, other than the Gospels themselves, the book of Romans that Paul wrote. We went to, the, uh, to chapters 9 and 10 and 11, and again, I've given you notes on those that are available to you. We don't have time to read through them all and dig everything out that's in them. But I said, that's, those chapters are a chapter of controversy also. They're controversial because there are those that believe that on the basis of some statements in the Old and in the New Testament, that the Lord is done with the nation of Israel, that they're gone, that they have been replaced or displaced by the church. So we went to Romans chapter 9, we introduced uh, just a couple verses there. We said more through Romans chapter 11 because those were the verses I was, would have to get to to, to make my point point. and I had to skip over time-wise uh, for the lack of time last night, some of the prefatory remarks that I may have made or that are in my notes. But the, those that would displace or replace Israel They're trying to get rid of Israel out of the Bible and out of, I should say, out of the future of the church. From the time of the uh, whatever different historians and theologians, it might be 70 AD, somewhere in there. After that, the Jews have no part. God's not interested in them. All the promises in the Old Testament, they're now for the church. And the thing, one of the things of all of the different truths uh, or all of the different uh, suppositions that come out of that, one is something that is really damnable and deadly, and that is that God has chosen winners and losers, that people really don't have a free will, that you just don't understand. You may feel like you have a choice to trust Christ as Savior, But frankly, God has in eternity past, He has already chosen who would be a believer and who would not be a believer. So, you may not know if you are or not, uh, and, and I feel sorry for you. I was in a panel discussion some years ago with four other ministers, and people in the congregation could ask us anything. Now, we were not all from the same theological background, and that's scary. I thought the questions were going to be directed at practical church growth, but one of the people in the congregation asked this question. They said, "Uh, Pastor, how would you comfort a couple who just lost a baby who was just a few weeks old? How would you comfort them? That was the question to all five. One of the individuals that was on that panel came from the theological persuasion that God chooses winners and losers. Now, he did not a- answer first, but when it was his turn to answer, this was his answer. He said, I really don't know. I could not comfort them because I do not know or would not know whether that baby was elect or not. Yeah. I couldn't believe, I'm not surprised that he believed that, but I couldn't believe that he would admit it publicly. And he did, and I just sat there, and the other four of us, none of us agreed with him. One was, I think, an assembly of God, one was a Bible church, another was another Baptist church and myself, and when he said that, I could just see the other four of us just kind of squirming in our seats like, give me a chance to answer that question, which they did, obviously. But that's the position. Who's saved and who isn't, and it isn't your choice anyway. So, the question really is this. How do you even know you're the elect? How do you know you, maybe you've been deceived into believing that you're elect, but you're really not? How do you know? Well, I, I called upon the name of the Lord. It has nothing to do with it, really. That verse, I know it's in the book of Romans, and I know John 3.16 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you don't understand, people who do that legitimately have already been chosen by God to ge- legitimately and genuinely call upon the name of the Lord. And so there's some people out there who call upon the name of the Lord or profess that they believe John 3.16, but they're deceived themselves. They really aren't elect. Think of that. How do you witness to people with that kind of thinking? But anyway, I believe that's a damnable heresy. I really do. And I know some good people, a lot of good people, who buy into that system of belief. Get rid of Israel. The elect are those who have been chosen by God to be saved. But that's not what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about. It's all about the election of a nation that God chose to use to bless the world, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and the promise to guess who? Chapter 12, verse one, Abraham, Abraham. Let's get rid of Abraham's promise and what we're gonna do is we're gonna tell people who has been elected or at least we're going to tell people that they've been elected and they're going to have to figure that out for themselves along the way. Now that creates a lot of different problems, but this is why I'm tying Jewishness together because now tonight we're going to go to the book of Revelation. And this is controversial in a different way. By the way, if you believe, if you take that last theological position, you haven't got the foggiest idea what the Book of Revelation is all about. If you throw Israel out of the future, out of eschatology, from the book of Romans chapter 11, on, you can't, you can't even begin to guess what the Book of Romans is all about. because there's at least eight or nine chapters in the book of, of the book of Revelation that contain references, direct references to things about the nation of Israel. Well, who is John talking about? Are those analogical? Are they mythical? Are they symbolic references to Israel? Are they real or not? I believe they are genuine references to the nation of Israel, which leads us tonight into our message. All right, the bo- the, Is the book of Revelation a Jewish book? That is the question, and I believe it is, I can tell you this. That you're going to see references. I just mentioned several. You're going to see Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're going to see 144,000 from 12 tribes in chapter 7 and in chapter 14. You're going to see a picture of Israel in chapter 12. You're going to find Old Testament imagery in chapter number 11 at least three times. You're going to hear about the Song of Moses in chapter 15. You're going to. I'll read about Armageddon in the Hebrew tongue in chapter 16. We're going to talk about Mystery Babylon in 17 and 18. And, and, and that's where I'm going to go with my message tonight. And then we're going to talk about, or the Bible talks about, the New Jerusalem. So, the key to understanding the Bible is the nation of Israel. And what I mean by that is simply this. One must First, understand that the Bible is primarily a Jewish book. Understanding the importance of the nation of Israel in prophecy gives one the proper foundation to interpret the prophetical statements of the Apocalypse, or of the book of Revelation. Revelation chronicles the final persecution, judgment, and sifting of Israel in what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse number 7, in what we call or term the tribulation. So what I want to do is this. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to do a little Bible reading right now. So get your Bible out. We're going to read more Bible now than we've read in my uh, first two messages. I've been trying to set the historical and theological basis for my message tonight. And look with me, if you would, in Revelation chapter 17. This is one of those passages that um, befuddles people. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is, is not the easiest. It may be the most difficult book in all of the Bible to understand. If you haven't read anything else, I know people who were encouraged that never read the Bible at all, and someone said, man, I'll tell you what you ought to do. You ought to read the book of Revelation. It's really exciting. Can you imagine reading the book of Revelation If you didn't know anything else about the Bible, oh yeah, that would particularly this chapter. It says in verse number one, And there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Or we would say, Why did you marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. When we've read about him earlier in the thirteenth chapter of this book, those of you that have come through this before. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest Where the whore sitteth are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate, and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest, is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth." Now that, in and of itself, that last verse, is probably as good a clue as any in that whole chapter of 18 verses. Now the question is, who is this individual that is mentioned in verse number 5? Mystery, notice the comma, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth." So that's where we're going to go with our message. Now here's my thesis. My thesis is that this is the city of Jerusalem, representing the Israelite people. And if, again, if you've done away, if you've done away with the the Israelites after the book of Romans, and they have no more meaning or bearing in in the Bible, then what I'm saying here is just poppycock to you. But I don't believe that to be true. I believe that a day is coming when God is going to deal with the apostasy of the nation of Israel. They are not today a friend of Christ. They are not friends of Christianity, and hence they are not friends of God. Now, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just telling the truth. I'm just saying what I believe to be true in the Scriptures. So look with me here, understanding, this is my third PowerPoint, understanding that Israel, oftentimes represented by its capital city, Jerusalem, is in the direct crosshairs of the judgment of God, enables the reader to gain the proper interpretation of the events that are mentioned, particularly in seven, eight, maybe even nine chapters of the book of of, uh, Revelation. Some believe that revelation is the most difficult uh, chapter in the whole Bible, for sure to interpret or in, in the, not maybe the whole uh, the whole Bible, but certainly in the book of revelation but there 's lots of different ideas on who mystery Babylon the Great is. Now, I grew up as a Roman Catholic in Rochester, New York. Many of you know that I probably mention it every time i 'm in some kind of a meeting that that 's my religious background and um, when I became a Christian, there was a a groundswell of others who had been saved out of the Roman Catholic Church, and somebody put a bug in every one of our ears, eventually, that Mystery Babylon the Great was the Roman Catholic Church. Now I believe, and you may believe that today, I wouldn't be surprised because a lot of people do. A lot of evangelical Christians believe that. I am not going to disfellowship you if you disagree with me, All right, This is not an essential doctrine of Christianity, what I'm saying. What I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to correct your theology, I'm trying to get you and inspire you to study the Bible. I'm not done. I have a lot to give to you in these next few moments to make you stop and think about how do you do that? What is genuine evidence that is worthwhile to bring forth and say, I believe this because? In other words, you can tell me what you believe. I want to know why you believe it. Remember, I said a couple nights ago I said this? Why do you believe it? Bring forth your evidence. We are when we are in a discussion with someone and we're answering questions about the Bible. What you are is you're kind of like a lawyer. What you're doing is you're dealing with a person who has a certain perspective on life, an incident, a happening, and you have a different perspective on it, theologically, religiously, or whatnot. So when you're witnessing to someone, what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring forth evidence. You can't just tell them what you believe, but they want to know, and rightly so, well, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that Jesus Christ can save you if you call upon his name and ask for His forgiveness? Why do you believe that? Now, one of the reasons why I believe that, and right now probably the most important reason why I believe that, is because that's what the Bible says. But there are a lot of people out there that don't believe the Bible. So now where do we go? Now what do you say? What is it about your life that's different today or we're making this profession or you've uh, adopted this belief where it's brought uh, inspiration into your life that you'd come and tell me about it and actually try to convince me about it? What makes it important to you? Why? Don't tell me it's in the Bible. Why is it important to you? Now this is where we, we ought to practice a testimony. You ought to c- come, let us reason together. We need to come up with good reasons why we believe what we believe. And I'm not saying throw the Bible away, I'm just simply saying not everyone's going to accept that as a valid answer to the question. I believe it because the Bible says so. I believe it because the Bible says so, but I have to go beyond that with people when I'm trying to lead them to Lord. They want, they want it more than f- the Romans wrote, or three or four verses from the Scripture, or a brief explanation of John 3.16. Now, I'm not trying to make this too difficult, or more difficult than it really is, but you need to know what you're talking about. You need to answer the question, why? Why? People are looking for whys. Hey son, I want you to take the garbage out. Why? Well because the garbage if it stays in here it's going to stink. Well why? Well it stinks because it begins to rot and corrupt and I don't want that. Well why? Kids ask that. It's a natural question to ask. Now it could be a disrespectful question but maybe that child really wants to know why? Why? You ought to have an answer. There is an answer to all of those questions. See, at some point you have to decide when the kid's just being a wise guy and you don't need to answer any more questions. But uh, you you understand what I'm saying. All right. Let's move on to our next slide here. Although this is somewhat different, I, I use the term maybe virgin territory, it really isn't. I've been teaching what I'm teaching you tonight for 30 years. I taught the book of Revelation several years ago, back in the early 90s. Maybe it was 1990, actually. And so I launched out. I had been brought up believing that Mystery Babylon was a Roman Catholic church, the papacy and all that. And I started reading it and, and trying to investigate, but I couldn't find any biblical evidence for that. I just found... Writers, uh, authors, opinions—that that was true—and their opinions weren't really good evidence. Remember, I said you got to be like a bring your evidence forward. I want to make—if you've got reasons why, show me those reasons and convince me. I'm not against you. I don't hate you. I want to believe what is true, but you've got to give me some good reasons to believe it. People need good reasons to become a Christian. And there's lots of good reasons to become a Christian. And every person, you can ring the bell in different areas of their life. Yes, ultimately, the Bible says this is what people need to do. But sometimes you have to take other roads to get them back to the Scripture. And like me, I was witness to three, I was brought up in church. I went to Catholic seminary to study to be a priest. I went to church every day of my life for eight and a half years. And then somebody started witnessing to me and I didn't want to listen to him. Because as a Catholic, I knew better than what he was talking about. One day, about the third or fourth time that he witnessed to me, he said something from the word of God quoting a verse of scripture, he quoted, I think he quoted Ephesians 2, and he said, for by grace are you saved, through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And as a Catholic, I believed salvation came by Jesus dying the cross and me helping and picking up the remainder of the rest. So it was a Jesus and me show, you know, to get to heaven. Jesus did this, he opened the gates of heaven, and now I'm rushing in by being a good Catholic seminary, mass, communion, confirmation, etc., etc., being a good little boy, so I'm helping Jesus get me into heaven. That's what I believed. I know that sounds funny to you, but some of you believe the same thing. But that's what I believed. I was going to hell with that belief. I was in my mid-twenties and that's what I believed. But he quoted that verse to me. Honestly, it was like, bing! A light went off in my head. What he's telling me is, I can't do anything to be saved other than to trust what Christ has already done for me to be saved. I understood what repentance was as a Catholic already, that you're Supposed to turn from your sin and turn to. Christ. I understood that already, but I thought you did that every time you went to confession. So I understood repentance, and then I understood that it wasn't by work, works, because of a verse of scripture. But he was reasoning with me. He didn't know how he was going to get into my spirit and convince me with what he was saying, but he said something one day, and I remember, bing! The light went off, and now I'm beginning to understand. It was about three weeks after that that I trusted Christ as Savior, and I understood it. I have not had a doubt about my salvation since the day that I was saved, because I really understood what I was doing. He did a good job in separating grace from works, and that was my problem. I thought they worked together. They don't. If it's grace, there's no works, Paul says. And if it's works, it's not of grace. I had to get there. So, although what I'm saying here is a little bit of virgin territory, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment of Revelation chapter 17 is a judgment on Jerusalem prior to the second coming of Christ, that is pictured under the seventh seal in Revelation chapter 16 in which verse 18 notes that judgment is poured out on quote that great city end of quote now I want you to take your Bible and I want you to go to Revelation chapter number 11 for just a moment that great city Revelation chapter 11 Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 8 all in the context of Revelation and what's going on, it says, and their dead bodies shall be in the, the street of the great city. Now, what great city? Now, it could be, there could be a lot of great cities here in Revelation, but the great city is never identified except, or any great city is never identified except, other than right here in this verse, and it says which, in the street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now you say, well, great city, that could be a little ambiguous. Yes, it shows up in chapter 16, verse 19, 17, verse 18, I believe 18, verse 18, but there's five times in the book of Revelation that that phrase, the great city, shows up. Only one time is it identified as Jerusalem, where Christ was crucified in Revelation chapter 11, verse number 8. Now that's an important fact. Because, let me tell you why that's an important fact, because that's what the Bible says. That's not what I read in a commentary. It's not what I read in a Calvinist commentary, that that great city is uh, Babylon, or it's Rome, or it's uh, you know uh, Washington, D.C. doesn't say that anywhere in the book of Revelation. There's only one city that's called the great city in the book of Revelation. Now this isn't all, I got 13 points to this message tonight, this number one. No, I've got 13 reasons, and I'm not going to explain them all. But it starts, this is what got me on to this. The great city, every place I see that, there's only one place that that city is identified. Hmm, you know what I did? I started thinking in this direction. I had a young man who was an institute student that worked with me, and I said, Scott, would you do this for me? I want you to go to the, the uh, library. We had a big, uh, big liberal seminary in town. I said, I want you to go there, and I want you to go through every Revelation commentary, and I want to see if any of the commentators say that Jerusalem is Mystery Babylon. I want to see if anybody does that. So he did that. He went through 60 Revelation commentaries and came back and he said, well, pastor, yeah. He said, I found four commentaries that said the great city is Jerusalem. So I'm thinking, I'm not the only weirdo here, but again, I'm living in a culture of people who say, well, that this mystery Babylon is papal Rome. It's papal Rome. It's papal Rome. Now I'm a Roman Catholic, an ex-Roman Catholic, and I'm saying, you know, I don't think it is. And People thought I was a Jesuit infiltrator. I'm not kidding. People thought I was coming in to spoil our church with this foreign doctrine that Mystery Babylon isn't the Roman Catholic Church. And of course they took it further that I'm saying, well, the Roman Catholic Church, everything's okay about it. I never said that. I came out of the Roman Catholic Church. I got saved out of the Roman Catholic Church. But because I was going against the common opinion of the group, all of a sudden, I'm on the outside. What's really bad about that is I was the pastor of the church. <laughs> this is 1990. So I taught this when we had Sunday night services. I taught this on a Sunday night. And I said to the people, and I had a, several hundred people on Sunday night. I said, listen, this is what I have found. I've just studied the Bible, and I've got more to tell you here in in a couple moments. I said, but this is what I found, and this is what I think now. So, help me. Tell me where I'm wrong. I said this to a group of people that was probably half this size. Tell me where I'm wrong, and I made myself accessible. I never had anybody come to me. Now, that may have been out of respect. I'm not saying that I really got them all, but they might not want, they didn't want to have to confront me with their belief. I'm sure there were people there that were not convinced that what I was saying was the right thing. But no one came to me and no one publicly objected to what I was saying. Now, I've given you the first reason, but the following are numerous reasons why I believe mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth is Jerusalem, specifically representing the Israelite people. Now you know as well as I do that in the tribulation there will be a remnant saved. Yep. That's all through the Old Testament. You find it in the book of Revelation. Not all, of, all Israelites are going to go into perdition and be killed or destroyed in, the book, in Revelation but many of them will never be converted. You know the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and I believe they are Jewish evangelists, male Jewish evangelists, Revelation 7 and 14. I take that literally. Isn't that crazy? I believe something in the Bible literally. Now, is there a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation? But I think that's literal. But anyway, specifically representing the city, Jerusalem representing the... The unbelieving people who are being judged in the tribulation. All right. So let let me go through some of these reasons. I said there's specifically some others. Number one is the phrase the great city. I've already explained that. Number two, should we be surprised that Jerusalem awaits a final divine judgment for her rejection of God's commandments in the Messiah? Are you shocked? Why would you be shocked that Jerusalem's going to pay a price, that the Jewish nation, the apostate Jewish nation, is going to pay a price in the tribulation? If you've got into eschatology at all, you know they're going to suffer. Well, they may suffer to the degree, according to me, is their capital city, where, by the way, and you see this if you study, the Antichrist is going to, uh, uh, commit the abomination of desolation, that might get God a little bit upset about Jerusalem also, but why would we be surprised that, the, that Israel, apostate Israel, is going to be judged there? Should we be surprised about that? You will not find, in the book of Revelation, in the first 20 chapters, you will not find the name Jerusalem in any chapter In 21 and 22, you read about the New Jerusalem. But God is so upset with Jerusalem, he doesn't even use the name in the book of Revelation. He just says, that great city. That great city. And he defines it in chapter 11, verse number 8. The city. He doesn't say Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. He says the city, the great city, where Christ was crucified. So that, that's something to contend with. Here's the third reason. A study of the metaphorical use of the term harlot. Harlot. That's a, other words, a whore, a, a, a fornicator. There are five principal texts in the Old Testament that refer to Jerusalem or Israel as a harlot. There are none that refer to Rome as a harlot. So if you're a fan of Papal Rome being Mystery Babylon, you're not gonna find that in the Old Testament. You know who the harlot is in the Old Testament? The harlot is the nation of, of Israel. Here, read this chapter with me for a moment. Well, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, because it's the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel chapter number 16 it's 63 verses long and you know what it's all about it's all about Israel who is a harlot and God is indicting them for their idolatry he says that the sin of Israel that the sins of Sodom were half as many as the sins of Israel Half! It's in that chapter! What did he do to Sodom and Gomorrah? How did they make out? He says that the sins of Jerusalem, of Israel, were twice as bad as those of Sodom. You read through Ezekiel chapter 16. It is an indictment. You're going to find the word harlot and whore over and over and over. There's five passages in the Old Testament like that. I gave you the one that says things more than any other chapter. So, five principal texts. You got the book of of Hosea is all about it. The prophet Jeremiah talks about Israel playing the harlot in chapter two. In chapter three, playing the harlot. In chapter three, verse eight and nine, playing the harlot. All about the nation of Israel playing the harlot. Micah chapter 1, Israel being a harlot. Ezekiel chapter 23, Israel's a harlot. So who do you think the harlot might be in the book of Revelation? Let me see. Let me try to guess. What other city is called a harlot like that in the Bible? Think. You got a concordance? Look it up. See what other cities are called harlots and whores in the Bible. Check it out. You need to study your Bible. You understand what I'm saying? You get in a class with somebody who's been in the book for years and they've been through the wars and all that, and you sit under their leadership and listen to what they have to say, you're going to learn something and you're going to begin to become what God wants you to be. He has a mission and a plan and a future for you. You can sit back and play with your Game Boy or get on YouTube or Facebook and play all those silly and stupid games and waste your life away, and you will never, never become what God intended you to be. And then you can come to church on Sunday and read three or four verses in a sermon and think you're a Big stuff. Well, I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, I really do. All right, that's great. Now, however, the text that holds by far the greatest weight is Ezekiel chapter sixteen, and we just took a moment to look at that. There's similar descriptions for the Great Whore, obviously, in Revelation chapter number seventeen and other places in the Bible. Well, that's three reasons why I believe that the harlot is is I said thirteen, didn't I? Yeah, hang on. I'll go fast now. The Bible is a Jewish book. That's number four. Where's the Jews in the book of Revelation? My whole thesis here is to say that this whole book is about the Jews. they got to show up somewhere at the end of the book. Makes sense. Number five, the word harlot appears 40 times in the Bible. You know how I know? I studied it. I looked them up. Forty times. I read every one of them. It appears 40 times. Nine of them are found in Ezekiel with specific reference to Israel. None of them are referenced to Rome. None of them refer to Babylon or any other city in the world. You check the other 31 mentions of the word and you see how many refer to Rome. None. The word abominations appears 76 times in the Bible. 42 of them show up in Ezekiel. Abomination, harlot, whore. Revelation chapter 12 verse 13 this woman, Israel, is persecuted by the red dragon. Chapter 12, verse number 3. Israel, by the way, for those of you who are of Calvinist persuasion and can't find Israel in the, in the uh, book of Revelation, look at chapter number 12. That's a good place to start. Number 7. With reference to the city of Jerusalem, Ezekiel 21, 2, verse 27, uses the word overturn. Overturned. Now, this is, this is just a thought. This is something that crossed my mind. It's not a big thing, but it's a little piece of evidence. Three times, Jerusalem gets overturned three times. Number eight, when will Matthew chapter 24 two be fulfilled? Read it and answer the question. Number nine, how about the issue of the purple and scarlet clothing that the woman in Revelation 17 is wearing? Now, that's where some people go to prove it's papal Rome. They say, you see the colors of these garments of this woman sitting on the beast. You know who else wears those colored garments? It's the Cardinals, the College of Cardinals, the Pope himself. And that's it. That's evidence that Mystery Babylon the Great is is Papal Rome because of the colors that they wear. Have you studied those colors in the Bible? Guess what? They show up in a lot of places. They show up in the tabernacle. Jewish. They show up in Jewish worship. They show up in their clothing. All of those colors are part of their celebrations and their worship. I wonder if it could refer to Jews or to Israelite. This thing that you're saying refers to papal Rome. Number 10. In the harlot city is found the blood of the prophets. Matthew chapter 23, verse number 30, as well as the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Revelation chapter 7, verse 6. The Roman Catholic Church did not persecute the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Zephaniah. The Roman Catholic Church was not in existent, not existent in the Old Testament. Jesus says that they persecuted and they killed the prophets. And he says, past tense, in 30 AD, they persecuted and killed the saints and prophets. The Roman Catholic Church was not in existence then. So it can't apply to them. That's a strong argument. Number 11, mystery is the true name of the harlot. While the rest of the title is a description of her and her activities, what is the mystery? The prostitute of chapter 17 is presented as the one morally responsible for the wickedness and corruption of the world. The conclusion is paradoxical. The great whore is the great city of Jerusalem, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now that trips people up. 17-18 of Revelation, they say, I have a great Bible teacher in my church, and he confronted me and he said, it's the the city that reigns over the, the kings of the earth. And of course John's writing this, who was in power in 96 AD, but Rome, hold it. He's speaking prophetically into the tribulation. Rome is not in power in the tribulation. I suggest to you that Jerusalem is in power in the tribulation because I suggest to you that's exactly where the beast, who is the Antichrist, is going to set up shop. So that 1718 of Romans, that's not the city of Rome. Again, it's where the Antichrist is set up, 1718, in the city of Jerusalem, one of the strongest arguments used to prove the, that Mystery Babylon is the Roman Catholic Church is the subject of the seven heads of the scarlet-colored beast upon which the woman sits in Revelation 17.3. The heads are identified in 17.9 to be seven mountains. The standard argument connects them with Rome. They say, well, Rome was built on seven hills, and God just made a mistake and called them mountains in the book of Revelation. <coughs> God knows the difference between a hill and a mountain. In fact, you find both, you find both words in the Bible. So I, I don't believe this is a mistranslation or just uh, uh, you know, a bad thinking one day. I don't believe that. The statement that Rome is built on seven hills is not a biblical statement. That's not a biblical fact. That may be true, but it's not a biblical fact. I wouldn't have gotten that out of the Bible. 51 cities in the world claim to be built on seven hills. I looked it up on the internet. 51 cities claim to be built on seven hills. And Jerusalem is one of them. So. They would qualify as well as Rome anyway, if you're going to take that way of thinking. There are approximately 700 references to the Bible that deal with hills, mounts, mountains, etc. Read them all. In studying these references, not one of them refers to Rome or the Roman Catholic Church. So why would I say that's a reference to Rome sitting on seven hills and trying to make my case there? There's other things about that that I won't say. Here's number 13. The scriptures tell us in Revelation 17 verse 4 that this woman has a golden cup in her hand. So what does someone who believes that we're referring to the papacy, for those of you that grew up in the Catholic Church as I did, you know that part of the Mass is the chalice, the golden cup that the priest uses in the Mass. In that cup, is the wine that is poured in prior to the beginning of the Mass, and at the consecration in the Mass, that's a specific point of the Mass, the priest pronounces that that wine has become the blood of Christ. That's in the Mass. Now, that's another one of those. See that golden cup? That's the chalice right there in the mass. So now we got the colors, we got the hills, we got the evidence is very weak, very weak. But the for Rome, but the evidence for Jerusalem is very, very strong. A study of the use of the word cup in the Bible will reveal that it is used two different ways. The first is a literal drinking cup, which would be the chalice that the priest would use in Mass, as found in Genesis chapter 40, the story of Joseph. A second use is found in numerous passages, is figurative, with the first such occurrence found in Psalm 11, verse 6, which is the cup of God's wrath. What is that cup representing that that woman is carrying on the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. The woman is Jerusalem, where Jerusalem, it, Jerusalem is reigning uh, with, the, uh, with the power of the Antichrist. And what is in the cup? Judgment and the wrath of God. No, those are symbols. You say, prove it. Well, at least I've got some places to go to in the Bible. Your Catholic interpretation, how would you prove it? By the way, I know that there are other suggestions. In fact, I think the second best suggestion, other than Jerusalem, is the literal city of Babylon. In my personal commentary on the book of Revelation, I went to, personally, 20 different commentaries, good commentaries, that I felt that I could trust the people somewhat about what they were saying. And they were, they, and I won't give any names because somebody out here won't like them. And you say, what are you reading that idiot for? So I'm not going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> all right, one, one was Alan Shelby. No, I wasn't. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I looked at 20 different commentaries and what they said about this. And they all had different answers. I mean, there wasn't even any kind of a pattern. You know, there was Rome, and there was ancient Rome, and there was uh, future Rome, and there was papal Rome, and there was Babylon, there was uh, Old Testament Babylon, there's New Testament Babylon, and uh, and there were other cities too. America, Washington, there were some interesting things and they had reasons for saying them. They had their evidence and brought it forth in a commentary they wrote. I haven't written a commentary. I'm an idiot compared to the people that I was reading, but I can read. (laughs) And I can see what they say. And I can see that people who are well schooled writing a book on something they believe they know a lot about, they don't agree either. So I started thinking maybe I've got something. You know what I got? I got the Bible. I got biblical proof or reasons for saying what I'm saying. It's not because the color of the of the uh, papal vestments are gold and burgundy and whatnot. Not that. It's not because of a golden cup that a priest uh, carries in his hand. It's not because of seven mountains that really are hills of which there are 51 other cities. Uh, Those are not my reasons. I've given you my reasons, and I go to the Bible and I look for something that will be a piece of evidence to prove that what I'm saying is true. Now, is it or not? I think it is. I think it's true because I'm bringing forth evidence. Bring yours. It's not a challenge. I want to be right. I don't want people to believe what I think because I think it. I want to be right, and if I'm wrong, I want to know it and get it right. I want to believe what God said and what he meant. I don't... It's not about me. It's about that book. It's about the book. Thirteen facts deal with the reasons why I do not believe the Roman Catholic Church and then I could throw in Babylon. That's a better guess than the Roman Catholic Church. Just not a good guess as my guess, that's all. Is subject to the book, uh, subject is the subject of Revelation 17. I believe that John is looking into the future and the city is the city that rules by the Antichrist, which is undoubtedly Jerusalem because of the things that I have said. Sola Scripturi, This is kind of a consortium of commentators also comments on the great city in their commentary in Revelation 17, 18. And these are educated professors and commentators. And this is I found this, once I got into this study. They say, the woman is the great city. Most commentaries, in their attempt to force Revelation 17. To refer to the ancient city of Rome, ignore, diminish, or generalize the textual details to support their conclusion. Revelation 11.8 clearly identifies the great city as Jerusalem. The fact that the great harlot is called a city argues strongly for this conclusion. Revelation 17.5 clearly shows that Babylon is not referring to the literal city of ancient Babylon. Therefore, there is nothing in Revelation 17 that disqualifies Jerusalem from from being a solution to the text and the question, who is, mystery, Babylon the Great? Now that's what I believe. Now why did I take that? that root, and say all this stuff here tonight. I did that just to, to tell you something that probably many of you do not know. You've had the question about who's Mystery Babylon. You may even have an answer. You got out of a John Walvoord commentary or a Peter Ruckman commentary or Chuck Missler tapes or John MacArthur's commentary. I've read all of those people and what they say about this. I know what they say about it." And you may have adopted what they believe. All I'm asking you to do is is challenge yourself. Don't just read a commentary or a book about the Bible and decide that somebody, what they say, is true. Go for it yourself. Go for it yourself. Now, I'm not saying to sit out there and question everything that. Sam or Alan says, put your hand up in the air on Sunday morning. Just a second. What did you mean by that? I don't know. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you go home, you get your Bible out, you get your concordance, your study helps and materials, and you start digging in as a student of the Bible Institute. So you can prepare yourself now for whatever God wants you to be then. That's up to you. You don't want to get to the judgment seat of Christ one day and get there. And the Lord says, man, I had big plans for you. But you're a lazy slob, you know that? You're a slug. You had all kinds of time. You could have been studying. You could have graduated from LFBI. You could have graduated in 2024. You could have been done with all that. But look, Rick. Right, you're forgetting the first things you were taught. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. you got to be taught those things all over again. Pitiful. Pitiful. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Why don't you be an expert at something that's worthwhile? Amen. Like being an expert Christian. Knowing what you believe and why you believe it. Amen. And not so you can intellectually overcome people who disagree with you, but so that you can be prepared to give an answer to every man that asketh of the hope. That's it with meekness, humility, mm-hmm. and fear. You may be the connection, the only connection that that person has with the gospel of Christ. And unfortunately, you have no idea what you're talking about, and you should. God help us. God help us to be prepared. The Bible is a Jewish book. The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. And I saw a new Jerusalem. You know why you need a new one? Because the old one has been obliterated. Coming down from heaven. That's the one that Abram was looking for in Hebrews. He sought for a city whose builder and maker was God. Amen. He never found it, but he will. Yeah. The Bible is a Jewish book. He'll find it in the New Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads for prayer, everybody. Father, we are grateful and thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. I get excited about this stuff. This is so good. It brings meaning and reality to us, (laughs) to life. Thank you, Lord, for this precious and blessed book we call the Bible. Thank you. It's so deep and yet so shallow. Anybody can read it and get something out of it. And it could be the PhD, or it could be the eight-year-old little boy or little girl. Thank you, Lord. Only you could put together a piece of literature like that. Help us all to become teachers of the Word of God. Help us all to become what you have in mind for each one of us as we study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you.